0: We will turn today to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, as we draw near to the end of our study together through this Pauline epistle with a message that's entitled, Godliness with Contentment. Godliness with Contentment. We'll begin our reading in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich, that's an important phrase, that will be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses." Our subject for today is one of the most important lessons for us as American believers as it relates to the things that really matter in this life, what is important. I was reflecting this week as I was trying to prepare for this message, and I'll confess to you that of all the thoughts that we've presented to you from First Timothy, this was probably one of the most difficult to prepare for, and it was one that, if I'm being honest with you, I've... I had in the back of my mind the entire time we're going through this, and there was a certain sense of uneasiness with how I wanted to try to present this. So there was a lot of prayer that was offered uh, by me as we led up to this message. But I was reflecting on the concept of the American dream, what it means to be an American, what are our traditional goals as Americans. I think that in a previous generation or two, maybe the idea was to make something of yourself and to work hard and to live a good moral life and at the end of your life have something meaningful to pass on to those who follow after you. I think that was the American dream back when my grandparents were young. And I think that those of you that are from my grandparents' generation, you'd probably agree. That's the American dream as it was defined back in your youth. Somewhere around when I was young, that dream began to shift, and so when I was in my early adulthood, the dream began to be take as much as you can, make as much as you can, however you have to climb the ladder, dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest sort of thing, and if you listen to some of the pop music today, the idea of, and to put it in a modern slang, living like a rock star, that seems to have taken the focus as the American dream. Now, to be very clear as we introduce these thoughts to you today, it's God's will that we lead a quiet and peaceable life. Now, how many quiet and peaceable rock stars do you know? Not so many. And as a... You know, local musician, um, even those that aren't rock stars, are not so quiet and peaceable many times. But God's will is for us to lead a quiet and peaceable life, a life that is content. And so this is very important for us to understand as American believers. Another reason why this message is so important for us today is because one of the largest variations of Christianity in our present day teaches what has come to be known as prosperity gospel. What is prosperity gospel? Prosperity gospel teaches that Jesus, when he gave his atonement, when he gave his redemptive offering to God the Father upon the cross of Calvary, as we emphasize that, we talk about the spiritual benefit of Christ dying for our sins. We speak about the fact that we have been healed of our sin and our iniquities have been paid for. Before our communion service, we spoke from Isaiah chapter 53, and it was a very heavy message on the suffering and the passion of the Lord Jesus. And then this past Friday at our association meeting, another elder spoke from Isaiah 53, and it was also a very heavy message on the suffering of the Lord Jesus. But as we heard emphasized for us, by his stripes we are healed, we didn't hear, rightly so, the idea that Jesus died on the cross for us to be wealthy here or to have a life without illness here, we heard that Jesus died on the cross that we'll be in glory one day when he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. There'll be no sorrow. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no death. There'll be no crying. But Jesus' nail-pierced hand will literally wipe off all of our tears. Now, while God is with us in this world, and we'll talk as we introduce this thought to you, the balance that we need to strike, we need to understand that Jesus didn't die for us that we would be wealthy people in this life, but that we would be joint heirs with him in the next world. And so his purpose concerned saving us from this world to the next world, not saving us in such a way that we would be wealthy and without any sort of suffering in this world. It's amazing to think, and the reason this is so damaging to people's faith, it's, it's often said that if your faith is strong enough, you won't be sick. If your faith is strong enough, you will be wealthy. Now, I have a friend, an, an acquaintance, who was of that theology, and then his daughter began complaining of headaches, and he would tell her, don't complain of the headaches. You're speaking that headache into existence by complaining of the headache. And she complained, and she complained. And finally, he takes her to the doctor, and she has an inoperable, uncurable brain tumor that eventually took her life. And he hates that theology now because he thought if our faith is strong enough, we won't have suffering in this world. But here's the amazing thought that I alluded to. Look at the life of Paul. Could you find a greater faith than the Apostle Paul? Did Paul live a life free of physical suffering? No. He suffered perils more than they all. He suffered homelessness He was beaten multiple times. He was stoned in the street and left for dead. They whipped him with 39 stripes. The Jews did. Forty was a complete number, and that was an insult to whip someone with 39 stripes. He was a man that suffered for the cause of Christ. We today on the radio spoke about the fact that Saul was the chief of sinners and God rescued him and how his life was before and after and the reaction of the church to Paul's salvation, when God told Ananias about Saul of Tarsus that he prays, go to him, preach to him. Do you remember what God said to Ananias? I'm going to tell him what all things he's going to what for my name's sake? Suffer. So sometimes the Christian life is a life of suffering. At minimum, we suffer in the flesh as we seek to live for Christ with this Opposing warfare of natures within our very being, the flesh and the spirit, at minimum, we suffer in that way. You suffer being ostracized from family. You suffer being ridiculed. You suffer at times. Recently, we stood with signs, pray to end abortion outside of the local abortion clinic, and people would make obscene gestures at us. They would cuss us. They would get in our faces and yell and scream at us. And suddenly the book of Acts becomes also relevant as you see things happening even in your life that look like when they rioted and screamed, great is Diana of the Ephesians, or when they dragged Paul out of synagogues and beat him, when they dragged him out of the temple and beat him, when they drew out Jason or they drew out any of these other men and they beat them for their faith. If not for the penalty of the law in our country, there would be people who would beat you for your faith. The only thing standing in their way is that they understand that they'll be incarcerated if they do that, because it is not permissible to beat people in our country. We all suffer, and Paul suffered. We cannot escape suffering. Now, that's a long tangent that I didn't intend to go into, but prosperity gospel teaches something so contrary to even the black and white biblical patterns of the lives of men and women in Scripture. And this message speaks directly to that issue. Now, as Americans, we live in a very wealthy country. I did research on that this week and surprised to learn that according to the way men calculate wealth, we're not actually the wealthiest country in the world right now. Now, you could, could have fooled me. I think when you tabulate in freedom and the ability to generate wealth and that sort of thing, it, you'd be hard-pressed to convince me that we're not, at least in terms of potential and the ability to become a wealthy person. We, are, we have so much material blessing in this land. While we, as people, consider wealth to be, and it is a blessing, a life can be easier In some ways. Now, please let me just say this up front an easier life doesn't mean a better life. An easier life doesn't mean a better life. Would you say Paul lived a good life? If you looked at what's important, Paul lived a great life. Why? Because he was always close to Christ. When we talk about contentment today, that's going to be the central focus of what we're content with is Christ. While a greater income can make life in some ways easier, you find a repeated pattern in Scripture that wealth brings a severed fellowship with Christ. Wealth brings a severed fellowship with Christ. Notice this from the book of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is speaking to seven churches. These are not groups of unregenerate people. These are groups of regenerated, baptized professors of Christ. They know Christ. They worship Christ. Jesus says to the wealthiest of these churches, the church in the wealthiest city in Asia Minor, to whom he writes, these things saith the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. They were what? Lukewarm. I would that thou art hot or cold. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I'm going to expel you from my presence, you might consider. You nauseate me would be another way to read that. Because thou sayest what? What's the root of it all? I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Did their wealth improve their status before God? Not at all. In fact, their wealth blinded them to their dependence upon Christ and being blinded to their dependence upon Christ, their faith, their fervor, their zeal became lukewarm. Let me just say this. God is not pleased with lukewarm Christianity. I would that thou wert hot. Or cold, one way or the other, but I am not pleased with lukewarm service. I'm not pleased with lukewarm service. What was the root of all that? Thou sayest, I am rich. And the whole while they didn't know that they were actually not rich. They were poor. How? Spiritually. They were wretched. Spiritually. They were miserable, which means. Deserving of pity, blind and naked. Blindness is important because they had no perception of that. They didn't realize it. I think many times in the American church, to use that term very generally, we don't realize our blindness, our wretchedness, our nakedness, our separation between us and God as it relates to our fellowship with him. Now, this is a lesson of fellowship. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He counsels of them to buy of him gold tried in the fire that they may be rich. He exhorts them to pursue spiritual things. He tells them, I love you, and because I love you, I will chasten you. Because I will chasten you, be zealous and repent. Zeal is the opposite of lukewarmness. And then he tells them this, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, this isn't talking about the door of your heart, because Jesus isn't talking to your heart. Jesus is talking to a church. What does our church have? Right there, I'm looking at it. The front door. Imagine Jesus knocking on the front door of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church on a Sunday morning saying, Here I am. Will someone open the door so I can come in and worship with you? It's kind of an interesting thought. I read at times in the Bible where Jesus just bursts through a locked door, where He appears in the midst, where He ends up in a fiery furnace walking with the Hebrews. But we also need to understand that unbelief severs our fellowship. And what Jesus is telling them is that your lukewarmness has put a wall between my felt presence and you, and I'm knocking on the door. All you've got to do is be zealous and repent and open the door and What? I will come in to you. I will sup with you. What does that mean? To fellowship. Yesterday and the day before, we had some great fellowship. What did we do when we fellowshiped together? We went into the lunchroom here. Sometimes we refer to it as the fellowship hall. The reason that we do that is because we sit there and we break bread. Breaking of bread is an important first century church practice. They met with breaking of bread from house to house every day. They refer to them as agape feast, as love feasts, where they came together and just experienced fellowship. What did we do? What was the primary circumstance of our fellowship? We sat at a table and we supped one with another. Jesus says, I will come in and I will sup with you. I will eat with you. I will dine with you. I will commune with you. You will experience me. How? Through repenting of the lukewarmness. What caused the lukewarmness? Wealth. It blinded them. In the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, you know the parable of the sower. A sower went forth to sow. He casts his seed indiscriminately. He broadcasts it. He wasn't micromanaging with it as we oftentimes are when we plant a garden and we dig a hole, the exact precise depth in the soil and we put the specific amount of seeds in each little hole dad always taught us to plant one for you one for the lord and one for the birds i don't know but whenever we planted anything we'd put three seeds per little hole and then we micromanage it with fertilizer and with weed control they they didn't do that they just simply went and they cast the seed everywhere and that represents the work of the gospel ministry we just broadcast it There were different types of soil. Some seed fell by the wayside. Some fell upon stony ground. Some fell upon thorny ground. You can read this later on your own. But when Jesus spoke of that which fell upon the stony or the thorny grounds, rather, verse 22, that someone who hears the word and the care of this world or the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, The gospel as it's been preached to you, though you received it and were fruitful for a while, the deceitfulness of riches choke it out and it becometh unfruitful. The gospel isn't fruitful in you and in me when we are obsessed with riches because the pursuit of riches like thorns overcrowding a profitable plant choke out the word. Think about it. When you have a garden and all these weeds, boy, it's so easy to grow weeds, isn't it? It's one of the infallible proofs of the truth of Genesis. Thorns and thistles the world brings forth for you. It is so hard to bring forth good things. It is so easy to bring forth things that are absolutely useless unless you're an insect or an animal that eats crabgrass or Dallas grass or any other type of weed that no one likes except the birds and the bugs. But when you have a garden and you plant all those things and all these weeds begin to spring in there, they absorb the water, they absorb the nutrients, and that which you want to grow to consume is choked out and it doesn't bring forth the fruit that it would ordinarily bring forth. So it is with riches. The deceitfulness of riches choke out the word that it's not fruitful. As we think of finances just as a general principle, it's important to strike a balance because money is a necessary tool. It is very difficult to survive life on this planet without income. That's why all of us, we produce income. You go to work. You save for retirement. You save for the day, the evil day. You see it coming and you hide yourself. Proverbs say a tremendous amount about money. We read in the book of Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 4, He becometh poor that dealeth with, uh, dealeth with a slack hand, To be slack means to be careless, to be lazy is implied. But the hand of the diligent maketh rich. Scripture teaches how people can become wealthy the right way. The hand of the diligent maketh rich. Diligence creates wealth. With the exception of people who inherit money from someone who was diligent or people who win the lottery Generally speaking, it takes great diligence to become a wealthy person, as we see here in this proverb. But to continue striking the balance in verse, later on in this chapter, Proverbs chapter 10, we read that the blessing of the Lord, verse 22, maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. The hand of the diligent maketh rich. That's hard work, it's determination, it's education, it's skill, dependability, consistency. At the same time, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. That means that there is a type of wealth that a person can experience that God Adds that doesn't come with sorrow. Now, if you take these two verses and you combine them together, you see how wealth is actually generated and there's even a lesson in that along the lines of fatalism. You see, some people believe that if you're poor, God made you poor. There's nothing you can ever do about it. If you're rich, God made you rich. There's nothing you can ever do about it. So you might as well just be in whatever shape you're in. I've heard those words spoken from pulpits before. Well, the blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. If you have great finances, praise God for that. And I'm telling you, praise God for that. Tell God, thank you. But at the same time, the hand of the diligent maketh rich. I can't sit around all day doing nothing saying, if God wanted me to be rich, He'll make me rich. No, the hand of the diligent maketh rich. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich. And He addeth no sorrow with it. Often in the book of Proverbs, we would learn about people who steal to become rich, people who are greedy, people who become wealthy, and then they begin to say, who is the Lord? And so Solomon is saying that God can bless, and when he chooses to bless and honor that hard work, well, he adds wealth with no sorrow added to it, which tells us that there is wealth in the world that comes with great sorrow. If you just read the life stories of people who win the lottery, more time than not, they end up far more miserable and broke and in debt after winning the lottery than before. Winning the lottery isn't the answer to your problems. Winning the lottery is not the answer. If you just think, if I could only win the lottery, my life would turn around. Let me tell you, through Christ, your life can turn around regardless of money. It has nothing to do with money. But Scripture does say that the blessing of the Lord, it makes rich, and He adds no sorrow with it. Now, we're just striking a balance as we go into this Scripture. As we continue to strike this balance, some Old Testament characters were wealthy by God's direct providence. One such man was a man named Abram. If you read the book of Genesis and you read the story of Abram, you know that he had a great herd of livestock. He had hundreds of servants, hundreds of servants. You don't have hundreds of servants if you're an impoverished man, do you? In fact, there was a time when Lot and other people were taken into captivity by other kings. Abraham armed 300 some odd of his servants armed them, sent them in as his very own military, overthrew by God's providence those kings, and rescued his nephew Lot. He was a wealthy man. Anybody that has their own personal military is a wealthy man. That's why we had so many children. We're working on it. We go out of town this week. I'm, I'm going to post a pic of me on the, the beach at Destin and say burglars get no ideas. My house is guarded by an, an aged, obese Labrador and a 21 year old personal trainer with his own arsenal. So <laughs> I don't quite have 318, but I suppose that'll suffice. Maybe one day. Another man that God made very wealthy was Job. He had many sons and daughters. He had herds. And when Satan attacked Job, how did he attack Job? He attacked him through his belongings, the slaying of his children, and then the taking of his health. And Job never cursed God foolishly. But there were many characters in Scripture that God blessed with great finances. Joseph was another one. In fact, God was so with him. Every time his brothers and anyone else in the world tried to kill Joseph and imprison Joseph, God raises him up out of that, lifts him up out of that. And at the end of Joseph's life, he is second in command only under Pharaoh in the entire land of Egypt. And through God's working in Joseph's life, the brothers that sold him into slavery end up finding deliverance in the middle of a seven-year famine through Joseph that they sold. You see God's providence all in that. God raised him up. God blessed him with that. Now, as a tool, money has proper uses that are not wicked. We're going to hear a verse in just a moment that the love of money is thee, and everyone can finish it, the root of all evil. That doesn't mean money in and of itself is wicked. Money is simply a tool, and it has many uses that are not wicked. It is not wicked, men, for you to earn a living and provide for your family. That is not wicked. That is not a wicked use of money. That is the appropriate use for money. God told Adam in the beginning of time, by the sweat of his faith, shall he till this ground for his bread? He provides for his family that way. Yesterday we heard a great sermon in the morning on biblical masculinity and femininity, if I pronounce that right. And we learned that the virtuous woman considers a field and buys it. And then she creates things, garments, and she sells them. What did she do with that? She generated revenue, and with that revenue, she cared for her family. Money is not in and of itself evil. Another proper usage of money is to give to the support of the church and the gospel. It takes income to have a building. It takes a church budget to support a minister. It takes a church budget to have a radio program and to pay the power bill and every other thing. And we all understand that. That's just simple, everyday sense. The way it is with your home, the way it is with the business, the way it is with the grocery store, so it is with a a constituted church. That's a reasonable use of money. And we find that all through the gospel accounts. You just read where Paul talks about these various churches that sent For his relief, the church at Philippi was probably one of the most generous churches to him. Wherever he was, they were sending for his support. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he corrects them and says, The only way you were inferior to other churches is that I was not burdensome unto you. But he tells them that I robbed other churches, wages of other churches, to do you service. And I think one of the churches he would refer to there would be the church at Philippi. He would allude to that often in his writing to them. It's a reasonable use. It's a good use. Another good use of money is the support of the poor. Now, this is consistent in both testaments, and by the way, I would point out that so is perpetuating God's house. They brought tithes of corn and wine and the things that they they sowed to the temple. The sacrifices, the priests ate of the sacrifices that were brought to the temple. God's house was perpetuated because those who received a benefit from it brought the things that were required of God under the law to them. We don't teach tithing in the New Testament. Tithing is not a New Testament commandment. There's no command in the New Testament to tithe, but that principle of giving is still there. We often joke, if you want to bring 10% of your wine, you know, what have you. Because that was what they tithed with, not, not money. But that was a system of taxation in the Old Testament. Part of the tithes that were brought were for the support of the poor in the Old Testament. God commanded that the poor would be taken care of in the Old Testament. There were laws in the legal code of Israel, and we often say that that's something the government shouldn't be involved in, that we should leave it up to churches, and I always ask after that, well, how much has the local church done for poor people in the last month? relative to what the government has done. When God gave a law for a government, that governmental law structure provided for the care of the poor through tithing, but also through the fact that the corners of their field would be left ungleaned, that way the poor could come in and the stranger, people that passed through, and they could eat from the corners of the field. Now, I love that system because to get the benefit of it, you had to do what? You had to go harvest it. Now, somebody else planted it, Somebody else took care of it. They cultivated it, but the poor people would go and they would glean that. They had to go do something and then they would bring it back and they would survive off of that. I think there's great wisdom. In fact, I know there's great wisdom in the way that God set that up. But there were provisions for the poor. One of the things that God would criticize many times, especially in the Psalms and in the book of Proverbs, are those that don't care for the poor. We should understand that God holds us accountable to care for those that are poor around us. We read in Galatians that we should be generous and charitable and compassionate to all men, especially of those of the household of faith. First in the church, secondly outside of the church. And I'm very thankful that Flint River is a church that has a heart to do that. Brother Hewlett and I were talking about that a few a couple of weeks ago when we had a, a need arise out of the community, someone was asking for some assistance for A bill that they had and it involved being evicted if the bill was not met and the the deacons and I texted about it except for Brother Hewlin who doesn't text we talked about it the old fashioned way on the telephone and then Brother Hewlin made the comment that I think that our church is so blessed because of the way it's so generous and it's our honor and our privilege to help people that can't help themselves and there are real cases of people in the world that cannot help themselves in the Old Testament, God commands that. In the New Testament, Galatians 2.10, we're told to remember the poor. James chapter 1, we're taught that pure religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction doesn't mean that we pay them a visit. It doesn't necessarily mean that we pay them a visit. We visit them in their affliction. That means that when there's a, a widow among us, Paul commands, God commands through Paul in 1 Timothy 5, we've already looked at this, that those that are widows indeed are to be taken under the financial care of the church. James says pure religion is undefiled, and it is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. I want you to do this as a homework assignment. Go through the Old Testament and read some of the things that God wrote about the fatherless and the widows. There were times that they were so stingy and uncaring of the fatherless and the widows that God said your wives will be widows and your children will be fatherless. I've had enough of it with you. So we should understand how seriously that's taken. But one proper usage of wealth is the care for the poor. And God is well pleased. God is so very pleased when we, through love, charity, and compassion, care for the poor that are around us. What we speak of today in 1 Timothy chapter 6 is the infatuation with wealth, to be infatuated with it. We'll go verse by verse. But godliness with contentment is great gain. To remind you of what we talked about from this, it's been a, about three weeks since we've been in 1 Timothy together. The last message that we delivered had to do with Christian servants. And so as you read verse 6, it begins with this word, but, because he's contrasting from something that has just gone before. What had just gone before? If you have a believing master, don't despise them because they're brothers. Rather, do them service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefit. These things exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus. He's proud knowing nothing but godliness with contentment is great gain. What's he contrasting? Those who teach their servants or those who teach servants to rebel and to lead insurrection and uprising? He says, no, you need to be content. Christianity is to be a life of contentment should bring a life of contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And again, he's following after speaking to servants. So if you were a first century servant, let's say you'd borrowed $20,000, just put it in today's context, and you couldn't pay it back, you had to become the servant of the person from whom you borrowed the money. When you found yourself in that position, Paul would have exhorted you, rather than lamenting it, rather than weeping about it, rather than being... Begrudging to the person that you owe the money to, that you're paying the debt off, unto, Paul would say, to be content with what you have. And godliness is greater gain than being a self-made man, than being a free man, than being any other type of person that the world would exalt and promote. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, as we talk about this, it would be easy for today's message to sound like dry moralism. What do we mean by that? Money's bad. We shouldn't be bad. We need to be good. And it almost sounds like the people in Galatians who would teach, you know, touch not, taste not, handle not. They put all these rigid legalistic commands on people. That's why we began with the... Balance. This isn't some sort of stoicism. This isn't some sort of prudish hermit lifestyle, some sort of monastery lifestyle. This principle, rather than saying money's bad, let's all just be morbid and stoic, the principle is that Christ is all you need. Now, remember the MO here. Whatever text you take, you take it and you run as quickly as you can to the cross. If Christ is all you have, you have all you need. Godliness with contentment is great gain. This isn't just simply some moralistic idea. In our country today, the major religion, the major religion is cultural. Moralistic deism. Everybody talks about knowing a God and believing in a God and we want to be good people and we want to do right. And and you hear this epitomized in country music so much. But this isn't simply moralism. This is about Christ. If I have Christ, I don't need anything else. This is a gospel issue. There's to be more value found in serving Christ than being wealthy, as we observe from Laodicea. Many times to be wealthy is to invite a separation between us and Christ because we don't perceive our dependence on Him as we do when we are poor. The goal of our life should not be the accumulation of wealth. The goal of our life should be the service of Christ. Our life goal should be to serve Christ. Now, my toes have been stepped on in this message. I told you, this is one that I've dreaded the entire time. Because how many of us, even from a Christian perspective, do you listen to some of the major national radio programs that all talk about how to build wealth through adhering to grandmas and biblical principles? You know what I'm talking about? Godliness, gain, is not godliness. Godliness. you're not more holy if you have a bigger Roth IRA and no car payment. Those aren't matters of holiness. We need to understand that because sometimes we don't realize it. Now, is there wisdom in not having a car payment? Is there wisdom in saving for the day of evil when your body begins to break down and you can no longer work? Absolutely there is. But you know, Jesus, James, other of these Bible writers they warn against those who heap up to themselves treasures for the last days. I'm not teaching you to get rid of your Roth or your 401K. What I am saying is that there's something more important in this world, and our lives need to be about that, not about the accumulation of wealth. The idea that if all we had was Christ, would that be enough? The idea that Christ is all we need, and if you're in a prison, it would a palace prove if Jesus would dwell with you there? That is the epitome, the epitome of what it means to be spiritually mature as a Christian. Something that is an epitome we would refer to as a perfect example. Perfect example. I had the mind to speak a little bit about Lazarus and the rich man. You know that there was a poor man, Lazarus, and he laid begging and the dogs would lick his wounds. And there was a rich man and they both die and Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes to torments. Of all the things that you can learn from that story... It's that it doesn't matter how much wealth we have in this world, we are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. All the money in the world cannot save us from the penalty of our own sins. As we think about Christ being all that we need, there were several men in the Bible that found themselves in that position. One is Job. Oh, he was a wealthy man, and then all of a sudden the next day, his... Children are gone. Dear Lord, what sorrow and suffering that must have caused in his life. I could not begin to imagine the sufferings of Job. All of his finances are gone. If you don't have a lot of finances to lose. That might not be such a big deal, I guess. He was a very wealthy man. Satan says, take it from him, Lord. He'll curse you. God says, I'll remove the hedge. I'll suffer it to be, and you'll lose Satan. Job even lost his health. He found himself, not even with his health, but with his life, with very little quality. A wife who told him, curse God and die. And three miserable comforters who came to him and said, Job, you must be harboring some secret sin, because this wouldn't be happening to you if you were right with God. He found himself only having God. And God was enough. In David's life, he was the shepherd boy watching his father Jesse's flock in the fields. He slew the giant. He was a talented, skilled musician, and he was employed by King Saul to play the harp and to appease Saul because Saul was plagued by an evil spirit from God. He suffered the way that he suffered in his mental state because God was afflicting him for his rebellion. He would throw a javelin at David. David ends up marrying Saul's daughter. He was a man that had great popularity, but Saul in his jealousy ran David away, tried to kill David. David found himself at times hiding in a cave. He lost his home. He lost a degree of his reputation. He lost his security. He lost one of his wives. He had a few men who were loyal to him. In those moments, he found himself basically possessing only his God. And it's in those moments that David writes some of the most beautiful psalms, and you can tell through the pen of David, his heart, that all he had left was God, and that was all he needed was Christ. The Apostle Paul in his life suffered greatly, and there were times that there he was alone in a prison cell so small he couldn't stand up. He was infested with rats, he stunk, he was unbathed, he was barely nourished. basically living in a hole in the ground. And it's in those moments that Paul writes things like, Rejoice evermore. Why could Paul and Silas sing praise to God at midnight in a jail cell after being beaten openly for preaching the gospel? They'd lost their freedom. They had no wealth to take. And as they laid in the jail cell, shackled aching from the beating, bruised, dried blood on their faces, they begin to sing praises to God until midnight. Why could they do that? Because they knew Christ was all they needed. Christ is all you need. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Now, that is almost cliche, isn't it? You can't take it with you. If you think about that, when you die, immediately every human being, their soul and spirit go to one of two places. And it is just their soul and spirit. Nothing do they take with them, no reputation. No career, no wall of plaques, trophies, savings. In the resurrection, when God comes back and resurrects our bodies and our souls are reunited with our bodies, our bodies are raised and the world around us, our homes, our coliseums, our shrines to human advancement, the largest of cities, our paintings, our art... Our music, all of that is burned. We brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. In Job chapter 1, after Job's great suffering, or at least the degree of it, Job arose, he rent his mantle, he shaved his head, he fell down upon the ground, and he worshipped. He said, naked came I out of the, my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. A few years ago when we lost our twins, it was a private funeral service my dad my grandfather my brother my wife and myself you know we lost them at about 15 weeks because they weren't old enough to get a birth certificate they let us leave the hospital with them and we went and we dug the hole ourselves it was the little private ceremony that we have as we laid them in the ground i tried to lead us in a word of prayer about the only thing that i could think to say was the lord has given the lord has taken away blessed be the name of the lord At that point, about all that that man had was God. And there, suffering and affliction, he falls on his face and he worships. What faith is that? Now, we don't present it to you as a way to scold any of us. Let me put this in a positive light. When you lose everything, or you lose things that are great, and you feel, and you feel Christ, you realize. That's all I need. It's not scolding us, but from experience, I can tell you that when you feel His presence in the middle of your affliction, you know in that moment that even despite all of the sufferings that you're enduring, you have all you need. You have all you need. Have you been there? Have you experienced it? I know that many of you have, and many of you will because we don't escape this world without sufferings and sorrows. We brought nothing in. We take nothing out. Naked were we born. Naked will we die. I'll give you a homework assignment for the sake of time. We won't turn there. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26 speak about the fact that men work their whole life and may end up leaving all the stockpiled wealth to a fool. And so he says this is vanity. It's in vain. It's pointless. So it's good for a man to enjoy his life, to enjoy the fruit of his living, to enjoy his life while he lives here. Scripture says so much about this. If there's one thing that we can learn from today's message, is take everything around us a lot more lightly and take things in this Word and in this church a lot more seriously having food and raiment let us therewith be content think about this for just a moment food sustains us it allows us to continue living if you've got food be content raiment what does raiment do protects us from the weather He doesn't even say if you have a roof over your head, be content. You know why? The man who's writing this, the only roof that he had over his head, many times, was the roof of a prison cell. If you have food, if you have clothing, if you're protected from the extremes of weather, be content. As we think about contentment, just turn over briefly to the book of Philippians, and I know we're five minutes from the close of our our time together in the Word. There's a whole lot more that, that we'd love to say. Paul writes, reflecting back on their compassion to him to send gifts to sustain him in his ministry, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me has flourished again wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. You've always been concerned about me, but you found a way to send to me again, and I'm so thankful for that. And I will just say that a pastor or a minister, when he is supported by those who he preaches to, those that he loves as he loves his own children, those who love him, nothing makes him more appreciative than that, to know that you love him and you love the gospel enough that you would send care Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned that in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. He elaborates, I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And here we have one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, verse 13 of Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. We hear that verse quoted a lot, and I don't want to be a curmudgeon about it, but I want you to understand that when Paul wrote those words, he didn't have reference to winning a Super Bowl. He didn't have reference to throwing a game-winning Hail Mary touchdown. He didn't have reference to achieving greatness He had reference to suffering for the name of Christ. I can suffer for Christ. I have strength to continue because Christ is with me. I can do all things through Christ which strengthen me. And if I have food and I have clothing, I need to be content. There's about an hour worth of things that we wish we could say about verse 9 and 10. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. That phrase, will be rich, means those that desire to be rich. Now, here's where it steps on every single toe in the United States of America, largely. Those that will be rich, those that want to be rich, what do they do? They fall into temptation. What is that? They are tempted to do that which is evil. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And a what? A snare. Do you know what a snare is? It's a trap that is set for an animal. When the animal springs the trap, the trap catches the animal and either kills it immediately or many times will bind it in such a way that the animal cannot get away, that whatever man set the trap, the hunter will come and kill the animal and eat the animal and harvest its fur. A snare, a trap. The desire to be rich is a trap. The word snare occurs many times in the Proverbs. Many snares in this world. And many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition, have the imagery of being surrounded, unable to breathe, unable to pull yourself out of it, sinking and drowning in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Why is it wrong they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare? It's a violation of even one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. To desire to be rich, to want wealth, is to covet. Now at this point in the message, I want us all to stop and say, Praise God for grace. We many times think, well, I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen anything, never committed armed robbery. Surely I'm good enough to go to heaven of my own works. We've all coveted. We're all guilty. Praise God for His grace. And when we praise God for grace, we find certain principles in our lives like, that's the only thing keeping me from hell. That's the only thing that matters, isn't it? What really matters in this world. The love of money is the root of all evil. not that... Every evil in the world, every sin is the result of the love of money. If you get angry and scream at somebody in traffic because they cut you off, money might not have been the root of that evil. You could either mean all sorts of evil. Certainly that is true. Any sort, all sort of evil has occurred in the world because someone coveted after money. But at the same time, the root of... The root in your heart of wanting to be rich is lust and pride. And you find lust and pride at the core of every single sin. The original sin. What did they do? They lusted to what? To be as God and to take of that which God had forbidden. The root of the desire to be wealthy in our hearts, to live a lavish lifestyle, an extravagant lifestyle, to... Hoard money without helping the poor, greed. The root of that is lust, it's coveting and pride. Now, as we share these things, I see convicted faces. Might I point out that you are some of the most generous, compassionate, loving, giving people that I have ever met? So I don't pick this because I think you we all need it, but I don't pick it to pick on any of us. In fact, I'm very thankful for your care and for your giving to the poor and to this church and your compassion that you demonstrate over and over and over again. I think you're one of the most giving congregations among our people. And because of that, we, God has blessed us to do some of the amazing things that we've been able to do. So as we close today, as opposed to all of this, but thou, O man of God, flee these things. Don't pierce yourself through with many sorrows. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, all fruit of the Spirit. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses.